Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing this song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along If you're a regular listener of Spirit in Action, you'll have had the pleasure of hearing some of the fruits of today's guest when he sat in for me a couple months ago sharing interviews he had done around the Pine Ridge Reservation and Wounded Knee. Robert Wolfe is a talented writer, researcher, and, and this lifts his other skills well above the crowd, a philosopher. He has written and edited some 18 books, but what we'll be focusing on today is The Triumph of Technique, The Industrialization of Agriculture and the Destruction of Rural America a deep look into the dysfunction, along with the roots of the dysfunction, that is pushing our culture and country over a cliff. Robert Wolf joins us by phone from Northeast Iowa. Robert, it's so good to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark, for having me. I'd say welcome to Spirit in Action, but in fact, you sat in for me one time talking about the reservation and your interviews. Can you say a little bit about the American Mosaic radio program that you do? Right. We feature stories that are written by people in writing workshops that I have developed around the country. I've been doing this for about 24 years. It uh, began with a project for the homeless in Nashville that went on for two and a half years, and we uh, published six little books, chapbooks by the homeless. And then I moved on to Iowa, where we live now, and I began working with farmers and small-town residents. And eventually this project just spread all over the country so that I've been running workshops in New Mexico and down in the Mississippi Delta in New York City and Chicago, trying to create a composite portrait of America by regions. And these books are published by, uh, and the workshops are done through Free River Press, which is a nonprofit I set up about 24 years ago. And American Mosaic was at first an attempt to bring these stories to the radio in order to really uh, promote the sale of the books, but it became an end in itself. And I think that I actually prefer the radio simply because we have the writers themselves in their own words, their own voice, telling, their, reading their stories. And the show now runs in about 12 states, I believe. What's the purpose of this? You're trying to get people's voice. Why is that important in our modern society? You know, that's yesterday. That was so five seconds ago. Yeah, we're fragmenting at an enormous rate. I mean, we're divided as a country, as a people. I'm not sure that there's an American consciousness anymore. I think the strength and the importance of the radio program is to bring an awareness, a a gut awareness of what they really do know intellectually somehow up there, that people are, they share the same common problems. You may have grown up on a goat farm in the mountains of New Mexico, but what you went through as a kid It's very similar in a lot of ways to what a kid in New York City or Chicago faced, and so forth with a host of other problems and thoughts and life experience. I want the show to stress commonality rather than difference, to begin to help develop an American consciousness. And by the way, a lot of my heroes in literature are from the 1920s, people like Van Wyck Brooks and Lewis Mumford, 
and Sherwood Anderson and Paul Rosenfeld, guys who were, they were centered in New York City. They didn't necessarily all come from there. But during the 20s, they were there, and they were really trying to help, through their writings, develop an American consciousness. And this is also what I'm trying to do with an online book that I'm writing now called A Search for America, and it's just based on the fact that I traveled a lot in this country. I've lived in a lot of different places. I've lived in 10 states and I've had lengthy sojourns in others, all with the point of discovering. When I was a kid, when I was 16 years old, I decided I wanted to discover the American soul. I thought there was such a thing, so I went out in search of it. And I ended up working on a cattle ranch. I was a surveyor. I taught biology in a Brooklyn ghetto school for girls. I taught in New Mexico schools. I was a columnist for the Chicago Tribune. I wrote theater reviews. I wrote plays. And I just did a whole variety of things, more jobs than I can list right now. And that was all an attempt to get to know people. So that's what this is called, A Search for America, and it's an ongoing work that will eventually be published as an e-book. But it's this, this passion of mine to understand America underlies all this work of mine that I've been doing. You know, I want to ask you a little bit about your personal background there, Robert. But first, this search for the American identity, American consciousness, as you put it. I've got two comments or questions. One is... Don't we already know what the American consciousness is? Isn't it corporate America? I'm afraid that's number one. But number two, if we get a strong American consciousness, how is this different from the nationalism, which can turn so much into, you know, God bless America and forget the rest of the world? Yeah, well, the first point, unfortunately, yeah, corporate America exerts an enormous control over how we think, what we think about, what we want, what we want to do. And it points up a negative aspect of American life that I've noticed over the years who seem to become more mechanical. I know even going back to the 1930s, Lewis Mumford was referring to mass man. We seem to want to be part of groups. I mean, humanity always has. It wanted to be identified with a group. But it seems that we're so surrounded by technology. Every facet of our lives is impacted by technology. That So we have eventually, it seems to me, many of us have almost like implanted it in ourselves so we have become very machine-like. We're, we're highly conditioned people. Nevertheless, maybe we never will get an American consciousness back again. And it may be that the best we can do is to get a regional consciousness. Working for that assiduously very hard here where I live and you live in the Driftless region, which is southeast Minnesota, southwest Wisconsin, with a little bit of northwest Illinois thrown in, we can identify with our topography, which is this hilly country with, with valleys, coolies. More and more people in the Driftless region consider themselves residents of the Driftless region as much as or more so as residents of Iowa or Wisconsin or Minnesota and so on. So I think that our region has as good a chance of any of getting self-reliant and of making it through in some kind of decent way for the next crash, which I think is coming. But I wanted to go back to the second question that you asked, and that was, can this national consciousness become nationalism? And yes, of course, it can easily become that. It can become something very frightening. But I'm looking at it somewhat idealistically through the eyes, let's say, of Carl Sandburg or Rachel Lindsay or, or the painter Thomas Hart Benton, who are just literally celebrating various facets of American life, like Walt Whitman. I mean, those are my heroes. Those are the people who I admire. I mean, there are others, but they're the most public examples of what we can be and, and the spirit that I hope that maybe more of us can bring into ourselves and bring into our lives. Let's talk a little bit, Robert, about your background. You say you left home at 16 out on this quest. 
I've read in your books, An American Mosaic and Triumph of Technique, I've read a little bit about your personal journey, and you're talking about hitchhiking or jumping trains, doing all those things that people maybe associate with long bygone traditions. Uh, I don't think it's so easy to get on trains these days, for instance. But you did this at the age of 16. Number one, were you just that precocious? Number two, who were you imitating when you took off at 16? All right, Carl Sandberg. I mean, I'd read Sandberg's autobiography, All the Young Strangers. I think by that time I'd read some of Kerouac on the road and the Dharma bums. I'd even read Burl Ives' autobiography, and during the Depression, he'd been writing freight cars. And Dos Passos, in his book USA, has one of his characters, Mac, who uh, writes freight cars. I had ingested all of this. I was listening to jazz, and I remember when I was 16 years old and wanting to hitchhike, I had maps of the U.S. and various states spread out in the living room floor, and I'm looking at routes going west, and I'm listening to Birth of the Cool, the Miles Davis breakthrough album back in 1949. So jazz was a big part of it, too. There was an energy at that time that I felt that I that was in some of the literature and was on this great TV show, Route 66, if you remember that. And so in that sense, yeah, I was precocious and very, very much wanted to get out of my hometown, which was New Canaan, which was a very stultifying, very conformist, non-tolerant community. And if it hadn't been for New Canaan, which was, and by the way, that was a community where the men commuted to New York. They were, I guess, run, helping run the American empire. And their lives, the lives of the people there were, in fact, very mechanical. You see the men lining the station platform, waiting for the train to come in every day. They're pretty much dressed identically in suits and hats, and they're all reading the New York Times in the morning. Then on the return train in the evening, they're reading the Herald Tribune. The wives pick them up to the station. They take them home from the station. Kids were supposed to be perfect, look good. So it was a very conformist, very confining town and society. And that, if it had been for that, I don't think I would have broken away so soon. So it was, in a sense, it was good for me to be there. And I've been able to judge a lot of societies by the restrictions and narrowness of New Canaan. And at the same time, in a lot of ways, very naive, still immature, but very naive. And I didn't, when I went out and, and started beginning to absorb all this experience around the country, I wasn't, real, I wasn't judging people. I just realized that. And I just was absorbing and just absorbed for, for decades. Did you get degrees along the way? You must have settled down. And if you were teaching biology and you got right. credentials to teach writing. Yeah, I was in and out of college until I was 24 and, and got my degree. And then a decade after that, I went back and got a master's at the University of Chicago. But I got my undergraduate degree at Columbia in New York with two years at St. John's in Santa Fe, the great book school. Well, what I mainly want to talk about today is the ideas material that you include in the book, The Triumph of Technique, The Industrialization of Agriculture and the Destruction of Rural America. Overall, I would say that this is a philosophical look at the progress of our world culture, in particular how it manifests in the USA. You start with idealism and realism philosophies from way long ago. And why don't you tell folks what realism is and about its transition to empiricism so we can get people on the same page? Realism would be the equivalent of Plato's idealism, that there are immaterial archetypes for things and ideas. And in the Middle Ages, realism was opposed to nominalism, which was the philosophy that said that ideas are just, they exist in the mind, they're human constructs. So they're very different. And with realists then say that reality is transcendent. 
for me, and, and I am a, a Platonist, I mean, I do believe that ideas, they're like emanations from God. So there's that rootedness, but when you come to nominalism and the idea that ideas are human constructs, then the weight of reality shifts away from the transcendent to the material, to this world here. And then that paves the way for all sorts of scientific investigations because there's a greater interest in what's going on here. And so finally, yes, we come to empiricism and the idea that, you know, the only reality is the here and now and everything has to be tested in order to be proved true. It has to be provable in a, a very practical hands-on sense, whether it's with scientific instruments or with literally with the human hands or whatever. And eventually, I mean, I'm missing out on all kinds of causes, but eventually it's not long before God just disappears from the scene altogether. I mean, he he becomes during the Enlightenment, just a, uh, as we know, this, this the clockmaker. The image of the clockmaker is one that's, that's, that's brought up time and again. The deists of the Enlightenment felt that God, once he got the universe going, had wound up the clock, he kind of stepped aside and he's off the stage. There's more inter- no more presence of God within the material world. So eventually, this God, too, disappears as science gains more and more credence and people begin to think that science can explain virtually anything and everything. There's absolutely no need for God, and the whole idea of God is, is scoffed at, or the idea of a creator. It becomes an object of derision. I don't care to talk to many people about my beliefs simply because when they hear the word God, they immediately think of the God of the Old Testament, a rather childish idiot who's uh, self-centered and, and just smashes people you know, for very trivial reasons. Of course, if you espouse these ideas today, you pretty easily get shouted down. Now, your book doesn't talk, and you, I think you maybe include the word God in there a couple times. So you're not talking about a specific metaphysical belief or anything like that. You're well documented in the triumph of technique. Still, as soon as you start talking about, shall we say, the good old days back before the Enlightenment and so on, I'm sure a lot of people close down their minds to you right away. Have you had that reaction? I don't even, I don't even, there are very few people I'll bring it up with. I mean, oddly enough, now we're doing it on radio, so lots of people are going to hear. But I don't think most people have the intellectual apparatus now or the interest. So I, I just basically don't talk about it. I'll write about it, but these conversations just don't come up anymore. You speak in the book about some of the transitions that we've gone through in our society, including the steps through empiricism and and the various parts that got us there through the Enlightenment and what we're at today in this increasing mechanization of our ideas, our thinking. We see everything mechanistically. I don't think that you're attracted to these ideas that you're espousing simply because they're nice ideas from way back when. I'm assuming that you see them as having very, very strong, important impacts on how we live and what our life is worth here today. Is that fair to say? Is that, is that a good characterization? Sure, absolutely. It was somewhere in the, toward, I think it was in the conclusion of the book, I quote or paraphrase Dostoevsky, who said, without God, all things are possible. And I think that's precisely what we see happening today. I think the lid has been taken off. There's no, there's no moral center. There's extreme relativism. I just see everything from bad manners to torture. We justify uh, torturing people all over the world. Because it serves our practical desires? 
or the, the desires and the so-called needs of the of the people who run the corporations. I mean, I'm one of the people who I think increasingly Americans are becoming to realize that it's the corporations and the heads of corporations who are really dictating American policy at home and abroad, that our politicians are nothing more than servants for these corporate heads. You know, I'd like, Robert, if you gave me some more of the practical examples, like torture, because we have no moral base. It's all relative. We don't have any way to make decisions other than maybe what, you know, the bottom line. That's all we care about, how, what the finances are. Can you give more examples? Just point out how this breakdown affects society that was motivational for you. Yeah, I mean, here's, here's a, perhaps a trivial example, but maybe it isn't. The, the degradation of language. I think Clint Eastwood was the first person to make the A word a popular word in his movies. And I think we saw the degradation of language through other films. And so people would talk brutally to one another. And this became common and it seeped down into our daily intercourse. I mean, just the other day, I was walking down the street and there's a one person trying to park a pickup and there's two young girls in the car behind and the person to pick up is taking longer than the girl wants. And she's saying, learn to drive, bitch. And she's yelling that. I mean, it just is like common discourse. I mean, there is no manners or just, I don't know what they are anymore. When they exist, we use them. If we think we can get something from somebody, otherwise forget them. So civility is gone. I think if we have another, another meltdown, well, okay, you want another practical example. No accountability. These guys on Wall Street who not only ruined the lives of who knows how many hundreds of thousands, perhaps even a million or more people in this country through their, their speculation, which caused the real estate collapse and it spread across the world. I mean, they were selling their swaps and whatever to Greece and perhaps other countries. They caused this worldwide financial collapse. None of them have gone to jail. No one who commits torture goes to jail. Bush took away uh, habeas corpus and uh, Obama has not reinstated habeas corpus. I think people are so angry now because there are there are no rules. I don't think there are any rules. We've seen the law scoffed at. If you're rich, you can get away with anything. So when we see that the very rich are getting away, cheating on their income tax and doing this and that, then why can't I do it? Why can't I, Joe the Barber or whatever, do it? Or if Clint Eastwood is cool, he's a cool dude and he can use this kind of language and that kind of language, so can I. That makes me cool. And then all kinds of just barriers break down and, and relationships disintegrate. I mean, this is in the, the Indian, the Vedic terminology, this is the Kali Yuga, uh, the Yuga being a cycle of time. And Kali is the goddess of destruction. We're in the Kali Yuga, what the Greeks call the Iron Age, the age of degeneration. It's just uh, families fly apart. As Yeats said, the center does not hold. And if there is if there is no center, if there is no God, I have nothing to guide me. It's just only whim and whatever satisfies my desires or my needs at the moment. That's what's uppermost. There are no restraints, except if I think it's prudent for me to conceal my behavior in order to get what I want from so-and-so. So when you quote Dostoevsky, without God, all things are possible, you're quoting that in a negative sense, whereas I imagine most people think of it as a positive sense. Oh, so we don't have the clergy holding us down, telling us that we're sinners and that we better obey them. A lot of people say, well, good riddance to that kind of control from God. This may be a, a useless detour, but what do you think of the Occupy movement? I don't know where it is now. I don't hear anything more about it. That doesn't mean it's disappeared, but... They did not have, or at least that I saw, a program. There may have been some people who were trying to develop 
I think I did see on Frontline, there was a uh, former Wall Street mucky muck who, who decided that what she was doing was, was immoral, and she went to help draft some legislation with uh, Occupy. But I don't see it as a general rule. I was asked by the local Occupy people to come and talk to them. And I did say that I felt that wasn't enough to demonstrate that we had to embrace regionalism. We had to embrace economic decentralization to try to get our regions, once we defined what our regions were, to get them as as self-reliant and self-sufficient as possible. If you can't win the economic game that's being played, you better stop playing it and create your own game with its own rules because the rules that you're living by now are ultimately going to defeat you. Hence, we have the local foods movement. We have a growing local and regional energy movement. Things of this nature need to be developed if we're going to avoid utter calamity, in my view. I I don't see any break on, for example, speculation. And as long as there are no restrictions on Wall Street speculation, these guys, they're not changing their nature. They're just going to look for more money, and they're going to do whatever they can do to get it. I just see inevitably another another big time crash, and we, especially in rural America, better get our act together. We're in a better position than the people in the cities. I don't see how the cities are going to survive. I mean, it just I just have this apocalyptic vision. Yeah, I just heard recently that most cities, if the system collapses, that within cities they've got maybe four or five days of food, and then. That's when the famine hits in the cities. Out in the country, you have access to some real food and other stuff that'll give you life. Well, unfortunately, you know, there aren't enough people. It's growing. Local gardens, home gardens are growing, but, but unfortunately, not enough people in rural America are growing their own food. But I think this is something that is growing. It's burgeoning. I think we'll see more of it because more people in the in rural America are wising up to what's happening. And I think we were ahead of the folks in the cities you know, long before the city people thought that there was any possibility of collapse, we in, in rural America were well aware of it because we knew how dependent we were on urban financing. Our, our farmers experienced this collapse in the 80s. We went through the farm crisis, which is still going on, and it was generated in urban areas. So I think we're aware of the fragility of the system long before urbanites woke up to it. You're listening to Spirit in Action. I'm your host, Mark Helpsmeet, for this Northern Spirit Radio production. My website, northernspiritradio.org, and on there you'll find seven years of archives of my Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul program. You can find links to our guests, like the one we have with us today, Robert Wolf. He's author of a book, The Triumph of Technique, The Industrialization of Agriculture and the Destruction of Rural America. And when I say that one book, you might think, okay, that's his total production. No, there's at least 28 books, anthologies out there, including things like Violence in the Promised Land, Witnessing the Conflict in the Middle East, Story Jazz, A History of Chicago Jazz Styles, An American Mosaic, Prose and Poetry by Everyday Folk. So there's lots of resources. You want to find out about Free River Press, and you can follow the link from northernspiritradio.org. And while you're on the site, please drop us a comment. You can make a donation. Help us connect with you and help this vision go forward. Again, Robert Wolf is with us here today. And the book that I want to concentrate on today is The Triumph of Technique, the philosophical framework which he offers us for looking at the world is the antidote to the corporate American approach that's been going forward for a number of years now. Let's get into some of the specifics of that, Robert. 
One of the things that I was fascinated to observe in the book, and I hadn't thought about it nearly enough, my ideas had glanced off of it before, but you said that one of the big, I think it's a moral evil, that emerged over the past millennium is the merchant class that previous to maybe 13th century, the merchant class was held pretty much in disrepute by everyone. I think that's why Jews, as a matter of fact, that was one of the few professions they were allowed to have in Christian-controlled areas. So the merchant class as a, a source of the problem here, am I overstating that? Not at all, not at all. No, in all traditional societies, merchants were looked down on because they did not produce anything. They were simply the middlemen. And in traditional societies, you made things, whether it was a pot or you nourished something, uh, you know, you grew crops. You, so when you made or nourished something, you were imitating God, the maker. And we were intended to make our living by the sweat of our brows. But the merchant, on the other hand, makes his living off the sweat of someone else's brows. So the, the merchant was always looked down on. Uh, you'll find plenty of that in Aristotle and Plato. So as technique develops, trade improves, trade increases, science makes more things possible for us, Na increased navigation, better sailing ships, more efficient ships. So trade increases and development of metallurgy. So all these sciences, you know, we can go on listing all the sciences that contributed to the production of more goods. And then the merchant then is transporting these, selling these, whatever. But the important thing is that here, the, the merchant, and let me back up a bit and let me say that in traditional societies, there was this view that everyone serves a purpose. Society is a body, so to speak, and that each part of the body represents a different function or different class. Back up and go back to Vedic India, where they had priestly class, and you had the warrior slash administrator class, you had the artisans, and then you had the shudra. The shudra were just the laborers. They were the lowest class. The idea there was, and in all traditional societies, is that it is the priestly class which should rule rightfully, that, and that they are the ones, let us say, for whom reality resides in the immaterial world. The same for the warrior administrative class, but for the priestly class, basically, and if we take it to India, it would be the, the yogis, his contemplation is, is the highest good. For the warriors and administrators, the highest good for them is to instantiate the vision of the contemplatives. And then the, the artisans, reality is in this world here, but for the lower class, for the shudras, the reality is also in this world, but the highest good is eating and, and sex and fulfilling the bodily functions. Whereas for the this artisan class, the highest good is in, in making and in nurturing. But you have, in other words, four main classes, and the, the two highest classes see reality as residing in the transcendent realm. The lower two classes, reality resides in this world. So coming to our times, it's this merchant class that developed with the development of technology and technique that sees reality in this world. And then at one point, like, like with the Calvinists, yes, their God was acknowledged, but wealth and prosperity were signs of God's grace. Eventually, once God disappeared from it, you've got merchants who are just wanting to you know, get what they can, get what they can as fast as they can. And these are the people who are now in control of society so that 
and, and their ideas are in ascendant. I mean, clearly, I would say the universities are not run by contemplatives. They're run by materialists. And I know, for example, when I majored in philosophy at Columbia, it was all a materialist philosophy. We didn't talk about value. There is a wealth of discussion, thoughts, ideas that you just spoke about. I want to pick on one of them, which I would imagine from most of our listeners may get a negative reaction. You speak of the caste system in India. I guess in the West we had, or maybe in Russia, you know, there was the serfs and the lords, and that's a kind of a caste system that we had in the West. Currently, you maybe have the rich people or maybe the hedge fund manipulators and down to the peons, the people who do labor or whatever. There's any number of caste systems. Traditional societies, I think one of the criticisms that a lot of people would have is that was passed by genetics. You know, your father's Brahmin, so you're Brahmin. Or if you're born into the untouchable caste, that you're stuck in that caste. A lot of us are going to say, Thank God that traditional society is gone. In your case, you know, you grew up in a town where here is what the structure is. Now, I I realize it was already a corporate structure imposed over the town, but you had your role that you were supposed to plug into, and I think you resisted it. So can you dispel for listeners perhaps the idea that you're calling that everyone should be in a caste system and, you know, some of us should be the untouchables and (laughs) whatever. Yeah, I mean, there should be, obviously, mobility. But how do we, I mean, the first thing, we can't even talk about finding our proper place until we find our vocation. I mean, we have closed up our hearts to the degree that we don't really know what it is we want or are truly capable of doing. Since we've interjected a lot of values from advertising and public relations, we're told what we should want, and these false needs are perpetuated through more advertising and through peer pressure, too, keeping up with the Joneses or whatever. So there won't be anything. We can't even find our proper place in society or find out our right livelihood until we can shut ourselves off from this continuous din of advertising and public relations and begin to look inward and really see how we react, not you know to different stimuli or to witnessing this or that, rather than judging them by how we are told we should react. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes total sense to me. I do think that there's an important part of existence which just cannot be measured by a financial bottom line. And our society has increasingly tried to encapsulate reality in a financial bottom line. And anything that grows the GDP, defined as how much money is spent. So one of the criticisms I've heard, and I pass on from that critique of our GDP is that so if someone does something that causes more cancer, which means that people have to spend more on medical care, that's a good thing because it increases the GDP. (laughs) And and that's the way most of the decisions in our society are made. So I realize there's something totally screwed up that we do not have a good measure in today's society for the best. And the fallback position for almost everyone is, does it grow the GDP or does it create more money in my pocket? Right. And this kind of thinking is just ultimately self-destructive. And we won't, I think, regain any measure of health until we can get back to a genuine relationship 
with the earth and feeling for the earth and the land. But I think we need to get back to more handmade goods. I mean, we've lost the use of our hands, of, of minds and hands working together. Now that I think of it, this is one of the, the critiques Sherwood Anderson had of American society and a degradation that he saw. I mean, it's what I saw for myself, too. I mean, once you become a mechanical person, you cease making things intelligently. You lose that connection between hand and mind, and you've already lost the presence of heart. So we've got to rediscover our hearts and rediscover what we can do with our hands. And only then will we begin to recreate a society where proper relationships are established. It's really hard when people are not engaging with the bigger ideas, when they're focusing on the little carrot in front of their nose. And I I think that's a, a major part of the issue. Would you say that you do or do not lean in the direction of being a Luddite? No, I'm not, I'm not a Luddite. I believe in appropriate technology, as, as E.F. Schumacher preached. No, just find the technology that's appropriate for your situation. And so by no means am I a Luddite, no. So you're not anti-technology, you're not anti-progress. One of the comments you make in the book is that this philosophy of there being such a thing as progress really only originated a couple centuries ago. Yeah, well, that's, an, I believe, a destructive idea. I mean, it puts it puts the emphasis on the material, once again, as opposed to uh, individual development. No, I'm, I'm not a believer in, in, in progress. I think, in fact, that this road of so-called progress has led us to, this, uh, to the brink of self-destruction. And I will say furthermore that that this emphasis on technique, which is a byproduct of, I'll call it a barren rationalism, has led to the triumph of the irrational, that most of society's actions, what we do collectively, and in many cases individually, is actually driven by our unconscious impulses, and most of them not very good ones. This whole business of torture that we've embraced as a nation is one example. Lewis Mumford back in the 1950s was saying that Caliban, that the, the monster from the Tempest, if you recall, he was now in charge. The Tempest basically, if you recall, took place on an island, Prospero the magician was in charge, and his servant was Caliban, this, this monster. Well, we've reversed things, so the Caliban is now in charge and Prospero is imprisoned. The, the very fact that drug and chemical companies can continue to produce things that are poisoning the air and the water, the fact that we're tearing up mountains to get at coal or to get at minerals, the fact that we're fracking, potentially destroying a great deal of our water supply, these are all irrational acts. We're doing things that have just enormous capacity for self-destruction. We see the environment collapsing. We see species disappearing every day. We pretend, our leaders pretend, that we are rational, reasonable people, when in fact we're just the very reverse. You know, I'm afraid that we're going to finish this hour without discussing enough of the really important ideas with respect to agriculture in your book, The Triumph of Technique. Again, we're speaking with Robert Wolf, the book, The Triumph of Technique, The Industrialization of Agriculture and the Destruction of Rural America. All of these ideas, philosophical ideas about how our country and how our world views what happens in this world are extremely important and foundational to a good critique of what's going on in our society. So I do urge people to get a hold of the book, The Triumph of Technique by Robert Wolf. Take a look at those ideas. 
Right now, Robert, I want to highlight some of those ideas about agriculture. First of all, I'll start off with the observation you make in the book. A number of the founders of our country, and certainly Thomas Jefferson among them, believed that farmers were a good and necessary linchpin to development of a democracy. And obviously, over the past century, the portion of our country who are people who are actually involved in agriculture has shrunk to what, maybe a percent or something of the population. We're now city dwelling, there's very few people rural, and this changes democracy. Can you talk about that idea a little bit? Yes, as I said earlier, I mean, when one is connected to the ground, to the earth, when is connected to seasons, to the weather, one is aware of a great deal more than one is when one lives in a city. I mean, the the urbanite, who is essentially, who can turn on his air conditioning, he can uh, sort of adjust the environment to his wishes, he lives in a concrete city. Abstract ideas become more and more important. When I say abstract, I mean things that have little base. I mean, he can build, he can build worlds that really have no connection with what, with what is. This is where you get speculation. When the city dominates the country and city thinking becomes dominant, then you get the dominance of money. I mean, we talked about earlier, the merchant is now in control of our civilization. It gets more and more abstract. So instead of actually dealing with gold or silver, now we deal not even with dollars and so forth, but we, we speculate it's all our finance, big financial moves are all made on computer and they, they all exist virtually. There's no and no tangibility to any of this stuff. And we've seen the consequences of that. We saw the financial meltdown of 2008, and I think we're going to see another one coming up within a year or so. So that's what I think we lose. When we cease being a country of farmers and people who are in one way or another connected to the land, we can create abstractions that are devoid of reality, devoid of rootedness, and they are instruments of destruction. And the idea of the destruction of democracy? Yeah, when money becomes the, once the power shifts to the cities, then the money necessarily shifts to the cities. And, you know, fewer and fewer people under under our system rise to control because once they gain control of uh, senators and, and representatives, then they control the votes and they write the legislation. And eventually, you know, as we've seen, you know, let's say a field within the economy that might initially consist of uh, 200 firms is whittled down to 100 and it's whittled down to 50. And now, what, I mean, how many major telecommunications firms we have? Maybe five, I don't know. Banks, we've got five or six huge banks and then the numbers, you know, the size drops off significantly. And it's the same in every other area of, of the economy. Each sector of the economy is dominated by a handful of companies or corporations. When that happens, uh, they can do pretty much what they want, and uh, your vote and my vote don't count for much. And Spengler, the uh, German historian, pre-World War I historian, predicted that in the 20th century we would see the victory of money over democracy. And unfortunately, we've moved significantly in that direction. Talk about some of the specifics that you deal with in The Triumph of Technique about how, particularly, I guess, this last century, we've commodified agriculture and agricultural labor and what that means. I mean, there's the genetics, there's the pollution, the way that we pour chemicals into the system. There's the effect that we have on the people who are producing this because, they're, again, they're just commodities who are producing other commodities for us. 
And I think that comes down to technique and the ascendance of science and the whole idea that arose in the Renaissance uh, and, and gained momentum, which was that the only aspects of reality that are of the world that, that are real are those that can be quantified and measured. Eventually, its values don't count. It's what you think about a situation is of no value unless you can somehow put a number to it, you know, whether it's in terms of a firm figure or in terms of statistics. And when that happens, I mean, it's all these ideas, it's the, the growth of money, the growth of scientism, growth of technique, mathematics, I mean, it's, it all converges into what you're talking about, the commodification of people and things. Once money dominates and once quantification dominates, what else do you have? Of course, I mean, we've, we've lost God, you've lost any sense of a center to the world or a purpose to human existence. So, of course, people are going to become commodities and they become machine tenders, they become servo mechanisms. And I would add that even a lot of these, the, the mid-level managers, they're, they're all replaceable. And the concept that some people have that there's this class of rich people and then there's the rest of us. And it's as though the rich are going to have rich kids and, and so they create lines and they will always be in charge and the rest of us will always be poor. Well, no, as soon as some poor guy does well and, and goes up the ladder and he becomes rich, we see just the same kind of corruption that goes on. I remember there was a poem by a troubadour poet, a baron, who's cursing the rich peasant. But anyway... We have to get rid of this idea that there is certain, there's a certain class of people that are bad and we are good. Poor people or whatever, or the victims are always incapable of being corrupted or of acting in a corrupt manner or doing evil things. I just have to recognize that, that in this society, so many of us are just cut from the same cloth. Some of the side effects that you talk about in The Triumph of Technique about how this has affected and, and how the mechanism went forward within our government, essentially the destruction of, shall we say, the rooted agricultural worker, the farmer. You talk about in the 1940s and 1950s how this structure was manipulated through, including under Eisenhower and before that. There used to be something called the Grange, which essentially was a farmer's union and did some good things. But then we see the emergence of something called the Farmer's Bureau, <laughs> which is manipulating things really for the detriment of real farmers. Can you talk a little bit about that history? Because I think it's largely ignored in our society. The Grange did very well at organizing farmers for a while, and they had collective bargaining power, but they went under because they got too ambitious in terms of setting up businesses. That's my recollection. The Farm Bureau really, oh, I forget the origins of the Farm Bureau, but I do know that, that our extensions grew, the extension agencies grew out of uh, state universities and that these were initially intended to help small farmers. And in many cases they do, but, but yet they're also propagating ideas from the state universities who are working in tandem with companies like Monsanto. And the Farm Bureau now is, it makes its money through selling insurance, most of its members are non-farmers. Again, they're, they're a front pretty much for Monsanto and Dow Chemical and so forth. And though they pretend to be a ground-up organization, they're in fact a top-down organization. I have a friend of mine, a farmer up in Minnesota, who didn't believe that when I told him so. He joined the Farm Bureau and he became an active member of it and found out for himself that indeed things are top-down. And, of course, the Farm Bureau has enormous... Well, I'll tell you, I'll give you an example of just how powerful the Farm Bureau is. And it's very powerful in the, in, 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 with the federal government. It has a great deal of leverage. 
a friend of mine in Tennessee was protesting Malathion spraying. Malathion kills bull weevils. And so there was a lot of crop dusting out in, a, in West Tennessee. And at least one friend of his had gotten thoroughly sprayed. Well, he spent at least two years of his life, devoted most of his time to the detriment of his business to go out from West Tennessee over to Nashville in order to lobby against Malathion spraying and to put some limits on it. And he thought he had some backers among the Democrats. But when it came to crunch, they deserted him. They couldn't even get a 25-foot setback from schools. This is how powerful the Farm Bureau is. But to top things off, shortly after his campaign fizzled, he, well, you know, he must have still been active on the campaign. He was visited by two FBI agents who came down. They had some bogus excuse, and they said that they, would he mind if they went through his business? He's a, he sells rare maps and globes, and so they went through it. The whole idea was to intimidate him. Two weeks after that, he got a visit from the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation for the same reason. There was a case of an elderly couple in Chicago that ran a bakery. They had signed a petition on behalf of the defenders of wildlife to protect wolves in Yellowstone Park. Well, the Farm Bureau was on the side of the ranchers that wanted to eliminate, uh, destroy all the wolves out there. So this couple was visited by FBI agents. This was reported on uh, 60 Minutes years ago. In other words, <laughs> you best not mess with the Farm Bureau's agenda or the heat of the government will be brought down upon you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Of course, we need more documentation to believe that that's the case. And, you know, a couple isolated cases. For all we know, that Chicago couple were also running drugs or who knows what. (laughs) 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 But the point is, of course, that there is something there to be looked at carefully. And if these are the interests being served, as opposed to the interests of the American people in general, hopefully we can reorganize the system. We're at the end of our hour. I still need to hear, what's the solution? Is the solution the transition town movement? Will that make the difference? Or you spoke of regionalism. How can we get there from where we are now? Well, I think, one, through the local foods movement, which continues to grow, through people doing their own gardening, through something even more ambitious, which would be local and regional energy production in various ways. But financing, I helped kickstart a movement out here with uh, time banking. And time banking, it's a form of bartering where every person's hour is worth the same. And you do your trades online. I mean, you, you make trade online, but then you perform the service. This would bring people into the economy who otherwise couldn't afford a service. It means, for example, if you need a service and say you need your house roofed and I'm a roofer, I I do it for you. Let's say it takes me 30 hours, then I am indebted to the system to perform 30 hours of service. And it could be to one person. It could be multiple people. That plus a revolving loan fund for business startups. I think we have to consider things like these micro lending systems. There are probably any way we can think of to get off this highly centralized, overly centralized system that is now controlling our lives. Do we have the power to do it? Um, County supervisors seem very apt to be bought off by various interests and powers, and so sometimes we just can't successfully fight, let's say, a confined animal feeding operation, which I tried to do. Or we can't stop a fracking operation, but we have to try. We have to try to do what we can to salvage what we can of a humane existence. 
my view of the future is, is fairly dim, but I think we have to continue to fight for economic self-sufficiency. We have to fight for developing decentralized economies, and it's easier to develop that economy in a region which has recognizable features, such as our driftless region, which I said has, you know, is characterized by hills and valleys. But decentralization to me is, is the answer, and it can be promoted through literature, through plays, through poems, through stories, through songs, through essays, newspaper articles, people talking about it. I think literatures uh, can be an important component to help develop that regional consciousness. I think the regional consciousness has to come first before you can begin thinking about this collective work, this collaboration, which is very fine and it's a very complex art. I don't know if we've ever seen it consciously performed, but it's something that we have to do, in my mind, if we want to have a, a humane future. And maybe I've saved for last a foundational question. You had some religious, spiritual background growing up, and you've clearly got something now. Would you care to share it? And how important is some sense of the big thing behind the existence that we live on this planet? How important is that in terms of the ultimate solution? I think it, it is. It is the, I mean, it's the root of it. It's the root of it. Reconnecting with what in the book I call the origin and center of all things. And it has to be the most important thing in my life. If I don't have that, I don't have any rooting or any grounding. And it's the only way we're going to really truly be able to reconnect with one another in a way that we're not trying to hurt others or just grab what we can for ourselves. And we've all had experiences where we know that we have acted on behalf of the community, but if we look at it, a lot of times we can see how, how much of our own egos were involved and how much we really were doing it for applause or something like that. So that stuff has to be rooted out. There has to be a real internal cleansing within each of us. And whatever form of prayer or contemplation or meditation you practice, that has to be the foundation of your life if we're going to make change. And given that all the people listening to this program will hear you say this, can you say something about your background, where you've come to, anything that you care to share about that? The most dramatic point, I'm not a Catholic now, but I converted to Catholicism I was writing for the Chicago Tribune. I was writing a weekly column and a lot of features for the Tribune. And it all, I, I would go before the, the editor and I would say, you know, the world is on fire and I'm writing about where to get a, a great taco or, or how to put together a great stereo system. And he would say, well, people need to be entertained. They need to forget their lives. But I got to the point where I, I realized what I was doing was utterly meaningless. And so I was praying for right livelihood. I was actually saying the rosary I had converted to Catholicism a year or two before that. And then I called the Catholic Archdiocese in Chicago, and fortunately I spoke to a woman who understood that I was a writer and I wanted a situation, I wanted to go to work for the church. And so she pointed out two institutions in Chicago, two Catholic institutions where I might find a place and it would be good for me. And one of them was Misericordia, which is a home for the retarded and for, I think, severe MS. So I was a house parent. Misericordia had and has a tiny little collection, a collection of maybe eight houses, suburban-style houses, with eight residents and usually supposedly three. At that time, they were, we were live-in adults who were supervisors. And so I did that for a year, and that changed me. That was my changing point. That's where my heart began to open up. And I found out later that that was a place where uh, the Jesuits would occasionally send young people for form young men for their formation. But that was the pivotal changing point for me. 
And I decided after that that my work was going to be service work. That's what I consider Free River Press, giving a voice to people around the country. That's my service. And you said, Robert, that you no longer consider yourself Catholic. Do you have a name for what you are now? No. I, I still pray to Jesus, and I have some forms of meditation that I do, one of which is is you can ask Jesus to come into you, and it's like I can feel him permeating my body, so to speak, and that's and you just stay with that meditation. But no, I, I left, last time I took the Eucharist at a Catholic church was with a priest who was later hauled off by the bishop. So when those priestly scandals hit, I could no longer attend Mass. So I guess we could offer a disclaimer. You're not urging that anybody do anything specific, follow your footsteps, but that this is just an important concept. This is an important foundation for being able to look squarely at what we need to do to make this world a better place. Is that a fair way of putting it? Yes. We have to look into ourselves, into our own hearts. Well, I thank you for doing that, Robert. All that you've done with Free River Press, I think people will be immensely enriched if they look at an American mosaic, if they listen to your radio program, if they see the collected writings you have of homeless people, of farmers, of people who are not professional writers, but just everyday folk, as one of your titles says. There's richness there just defining who we are, and the analysis that you have in The Triumph of Technique is just such a breath of fresh air for looking at our world and seeing a better way forward. So I thank you for all those good works that you've done, that you continue to do through Free River Press, and I thank you for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you very much, Mark. Very much appreciate today. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, well, I'm glad you did. I, mean, I, I don't want to torture anyone. <laughs> <laughs> the theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song.